Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 98, A Series of Unfortunate Decisions. Last episode, we saw the construction of the Berlin Wall, growing dissatisfaction with Khrushchev's agricultural policies, and the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, the idea of attempting to put mid- and short-range nuclear missiles in Cuba could be one of the most foolhardy things you can imagine. The Soviet premier, despite all the bravado and blustering, really still wanted peace with the West, which makes his decision even more baffling. So how did they come up with the decision to provoke the United States by putting offensive nuclear weapons just 90 miles from the Florida coast come about? Well, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we were able to get information about that through the writings of the time. And it's a real fascinating, frightening, and mind-numbing trek that led to a crisis that brought the world closer to a nuclear war than any event before or after. So let's get to it. Because of the many spies the United States had in the Soviet military, we were aware of the lack of ability of the Soviets to deliver a nuclear bomb to the American mainland. Khrushchev had told the world that he could bomb the Americans into oblivion, but the reality was just the opposite. So if this is true, and Khrushchev knew he was much weaker than he let on publicly, why on earth would he put his country at such a risk? Well, let's figure this out by going to the beginning. Now, in January of 1959, Fidel Castro succeeded in overthrowing the Fulgencio Batista government. At first, Soviets were kind of unsure whether this new Cuban leader was a communist or not. Also, Khrushchev was hesitant at first to send aid to the island nation, lest he antagonize the United States. We have to remember that Nikita was about to go on his American trip. We recounted, a few episodes ago, in September of 1959. So he decided against military aid. But when he returned to Moscow from his trip to the United States, he decided to begin to send aid without concern of how Washington would react. His advisors told him to be cautious, but he felt that he was in the right and had no need to heed their advice. Over the next couple of years, 1960 and 1961, as the countries got closer, Khrushchev sent Mikoyan to feel out Castro. When he returned to Russia, Mikoyan proclaimed, Yes, he is a revolutionary, completely like us. I felt as though I had returned to my childhood. Later in the year, Castro met Khrushchev in Harlem when the Soviet leader visited the United Nations. Then, on June 9, 1960, he declared that Cuba would be a protected bastion of socialism and the Soviet Union would protect them, quote, If need be, Soviet artillerymen can support the Cuban people with their rocket fire, should the aggressive forces in the Pentagon dare to start intervention against Cuba. Castro was sure that the United States would invade any day, and as 1960 ended with no invasion in sight, Khrushchev assumed that his threat was the reason for the island's protection. So when the Bay of Pigs invasion proved to be a farcical event, Khrushchev again thought that Soviet saber-rattling was why the United States didn't send in a larger force. His confidence was brimming over. You see, there was an issue facing the Soviets 
And it was their fear of being attacked first, like they were in World War II, and the fact that NATO had missiles pointed at them from bases near their border in Turkey, Italy, and Norway. That and the American ICBMs were capable of hitting any city in Russia from bases deep in the U.S. So when Kennedy asked for a major hike in the defense budget, was there really a need to do it? As the Soviets were far weaker than the public was led to believe. Former President Eisenhower was right when he spoke of being cautious about the influence of the military-industrial complex on government policy. We, the American taxpayers, paid for military projects that, most, for the most part, were unnecessary. Kind of sounds vaguely familiar in today's world as well, doesn't it? So when Khrushchev met with his defense council at Pitsunda in February 1962, he learned it would take several hours to prepare their R-16 missiles to launch, as opposed to several minutes for the American Minutemen rockets. As Marshal Moskalenko commented, quote, Before we get ready to launch, there won't even be a wet spot left of any of us. The difference between the two countries' missiles was the type of fuel they used. The Americans used a very stable solid fuel system. The Russians had an unstable liquid fuel that had to be drained after 30 days, or they would explode, and some did. So we have to remember that the Soviets did not have the long-range missiles that the public was led to believe, and a lot of the leaders of the other communist worlds, you know, countries believed that Khrushchev had these missiles, but they really didn't. Now this sobering news came down hard on Khrushchev. As his son Sergei remembered, father looked around the room gloomily. The result he wanted had once again proved impossible to achieve. He asked those present to think about what could be done to reduce to a minimum the amount of time it would take to catch up to the Americans. What the Soviets lacked in intercontinental missiles, they made up with short and medium range ones, which were much more stable and accurate. What they lacked were bases that were close enough to the United States to hit their major cities. Cuba was such a place. With a base like that, as Yuri Andropov put it, once this is done, we'll be able to target them at the soft underbelly of the United States. In his memoirs, Khrushchev commented, in addition to protecting Cuba, our missiles would have equalized what the West likes to call the balance of power. The Americans would learn just what it feels like to have enemy missiles pointing at you. We'd be doing nothing more than giving them a little of their own medicine. We Russians have suffered three wars over the past half century. America has never had to fight a war on her own soil and made a fortune as a result. America has made billions by bleeding the rest of the world. As an aside, we have to step back a little bit. Starting in September of 1961, Khrushchev and Kennedy began a series of secret correspondences called the Pen Pal Correspondence. Nikita pressed the U.S. president on settling the Berlin issue. He once wrote, You have to understand, I have no ground to retreat further. There is a precipice behind me. We must conclude a German peace treaty, and we will conclude it, even if you do not agree. The odd thing about Khrushchev pressing Kennedy on Berlin was that the wall was already up. 
and the tide of East Germans leaving their country had stopped. So why did the Soviet Premier continue to press the issue? As Troyanowski put it, he had to hammer away at something. After all, there was a Cold War going on. So basically, Khrushchev had to force an issue because of no other reason than it was expected. But it was also trying to delay the Americans looking at their aid to Cuba to focus them on a different issue, which was Berlin. In April of 1962, Soviet Defense Minister Malinovsky gave a sobering report to Khrushchev, telling the Premier that the United States' Jupiter missiles in Turkey were now fully operational. Hearing that, Khrushchev asked his minister, Rodion Yakovlevich, what if we throw a hedgehog down Uncle Sam's pants? The hedgehog was the idea of putting missiles in Cuba in response to those on Russia's border in Turkey. Nikita claimed that the decision was, from the outset, worked out in the collective leadership. It wasn't until after two or three lengthy discussions. The truth is, he made the decision alone, as he had made the suggestion to Mikoyan months earlier. Mikoyan, Dobrinin, and Troyanovsky all had serious reservations, but all claimed that Khrushchev had not consulted with them. During a meeting with some of his advisors, Khrushchev posed the following scenario. Quote, if there were an island 140 kilometers off our shore, which we needed to invade and pacify, no matter how desperately it was defended, and if you were given any and all means to do so except nuclear weapons, how much time would it take you to accomplish the job? Malinovsky responded that it would only take three to five days. You see, what can we do to help Cuba? Not a thing. In any event, our help would be late in reaching the other side of the world. And once the fight is over, fists are useless. Now Khrushchev needed to convince Castro to allow the bases to be built and the missiles to be placed in Cuba. For that mission, he enlisted Alexander Alexeyev, who was about to replace the Soviet ambassador to Cuba, Sergei Kudryaitsev. What made Alexeyev so qualified was his friendship with both Castro and Che Guevara. So in a meeting in Russia, along with Mikoyan, Kozlov, Malinovsky, Gromyko, Biryuzov, Rashidov, and Alexeyev, Khrushchev asked if Castro would mind putting missiles in Cuba. As Alexeyev remembered the question, he nearly turned me to ice. The ambassador didn't think Castro would agree, as it might alienate others in Latin America. Khrushchev wouldn't hear of it, and proceeded to harangue the group with a defense of his plan. He was convinced, and rightfully so, that America would attempt another invasion of the Caribbean island, and that the threat of nuclear weapons was the only way to prevent it. Khrushchev then ordered Alexeyev, Biryuzov, and Rashidov to head to Havana, to convince Castro to back the plan. Andrei Gromyko, in a rare moment of bravery, objected to the plan. Quote, Putting missiles in Cuba would cause a political explosion in the United States. I am absolutely certain of that. Despite his argument, Khrushchev would not change his mind. 
This was a kind of a personality characteristic of Nikitas. Once a plan was in his mind, it was almost impossible to dislodge it. It was this stubbornness that almost led to the death of millions of people. The procedure to put the plan into effect was to first have it approved by the Soviet Defense Council and then the full Presidium. Khrushchev did not really follow the protocol at first, ordering General Anatoly Gribkov to create a plan for the, quote, creation, transportation, and supply of a military unit similar in its makeup and mission, if not for its size, to Soviet forces stationed in Eastern and Central Europe. The plan, presented by Defense Minister Malinovsky and endorsed by Khrushchev, was passed to members of the Presidium, who were immediately uneasy about it. As Taubman puts it in his biography of Khrushchev, quote, Signs of unease did appear when General Ivanov made the rounds of Presidium members to get their signatures on the formal document. Tradition called for writing the word za, or for, before signing. In this case, at least Mikoyan, and perhaps others, provided only signatures, while Central Committee secretaries who were Presidium candidate members failed to sign at all. The latter practice was standard, since candidate members lacked formal voting rights, but Khrushchev ordered Ivanov to go around to their dachas too. They'll sign. After a call from Khrushchev, even Mikoyan added his, za. On Sunday, May 27, 1962, the de delegation to Cuba was given their final instructions. The trip was top secret, with the members giving, given assumed names and fake passports. Castro was surprised by the delegation and, of course, their request to put missiles in Cuba. One of his reasons for his surprise was his assumption that the Soviet Union surely had plenty of long-range missiles aimed at America, so why did they need to use Cuba? While Castro was very unsure about the plan, he agreed to it as he felt positive that the idea had to have been well thought out by the entire Soviet hierarchy. When he came to the USSR in 1963 and met with the Presidium members, he asked, how was this decision made? Which were the arguments used? And I wasn't able to get a single word. They often simply didn't reply to my questions. And of course, you can't be impertinent and say, hey, answer my question. Biryuzov, the military man, toured the island and concluded that the missile sites could be hidden from view of U-2 spy planes by the many groves of palm trees. Mikoyan was not as sure as he later recalled that Biryuzov wasn't very bright. I myself have seen those palms, and there was no way you were going to hide rocket launch sites underneath them. On June 10th, the Presidium then unanimously agreed to the plan. Troyanovsky later recalled, It is totally beyond my comprehension how, taking into account the tremendous scale of the operation, anyone could seriously hope to keep it secret, whereas its success hinged entirely on springing a surprise. So what was the plan from here? Well, instead of a small number of missiles, military geniuses decided instead to install 36 medium-range and 24 intermediate-range missiles 
with nuclear warheads with two to eight hundred kilotons of power each. That equates to an explosive power of 10 to 35 times greater than the bombs dropped on Nagasaki or Hiroshima. On top of that, support staff and military backup to protect the sites would be planted in Cuba with three months of fuel and food for the estimated 50,000 men needed to build and support the project. Of course, this was all to be done under the utmost secrecy. Yeah, right. As if that wasn't the definition of lunacy, the Kremlin would not have had complete control of the missiles. While his order was that none of the missiles could be fired without authorization from Moscow, General Gribkov wondered, would the attackers have found and neutralized the bunkers where the nuclear charges for the Lunas and the cruise missiles were stored? Or would a desperate group of Soviet defenders, with or without an order from above, have been able to arm and fire even one Luna warhead with a yield one-tenth that of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima or one of the more powerful cruise missile charges. If such a rocket had hit U.S. troops or ships, if thousands of Americans had died in the atomic blast, would that have been the last shot of the Cuban crisis or the first of a global nuclear war? Let's sit on that for a second. From everything I've researched, the Cuban Missile Crisis was so scary that the world could have easily gone up in a nuclear flame because of the idiocy of the idea of Khrushchev's. The man to lead the expedition was General Isa Plaev, who turned out to be a very poor choice as he totally lacked the di necessary diplomatic skills to work with Castro. To top it off, the plan to get all those men and equipment to Cuba was a disaster from the very beginning. Poor planning, not taking into account the heat and humidity of Cuba, led to a miserable experience for the Russians sent there. Once there, logistical problems came up with the soil composition, mosquitoes, poisonous guayago trees, as well as weather causing delays, and the palm trees, ah, the palm trees, which were supposed to conceal the operation were terribly inadequate, as Mikoyan had warned. As General Gribkov later griped, multiple command and support buildings, rows of fuel trucks and tanks, and hundreds of meters of thick cable, all surrounding the large concrete slabs that anchored the missile launchers. Once the heavy equipment had been moved in, such an installation, but not the road built to it, could be hidden from ground-level view. From above, however, it could and did stick out like a sore thumb. On October 14, 1962, the day Gribkov arrived in Havana, he received some very bad news. U-2 spy planes were flying over Cuba. They were sure the Americans now knew what Khrushchev and the Soviets were up to, and they assumed they were not happy. Khrushchev's plan was to get the bases fully operational and then spring it on the Americans where he believed that Kennedy would learn to accept the smell of the missiles. In case they found out early, the plan was... Uh, wait, there was no backup plan. The thought that all of these movements could be done without the U.S. finding out was preposterous. In fact, it amazed 
everyone that it actually took the Americans so long to detect the bases. Admiral Nikolai Amelko remembered. The missiles were visible when they were brought down the rivers to Odessa to be loaded on ships. Everybody in Odessa was talking about missiles being sent overseas. They were also visible when they were unloaded and transported to their Cuban bases. General Gripkov added, It is remarkable that the secret stayed a secret for a full month after the MRBMs reached Cuba. Anatoly Dobrinin said, Frankly, I don't have the impression that everything was thought through to the last move, as in a game of chess. Undoubtedly, there was the conception. Steps were taken, but there was improvisation as things unfolded. The Castro regime was nervous, as they knew about the U-2 flyovers. Khrushchev responded by telling the Cubans over the phone, Hey, don't have to worry. There'll be no big reaction from the United States, and if there's a problem, we'll send the Baltic fleet. Che Guevara's aide, Emilio Aragones, remembered the comment. When he said it, Che and I looked at each other with raised eyebrows. But you know, they had a great deal of experience with the Americans, and their information was superior to what we had. Join me next time as we watch the world teeter on the edge of war and how Khrushchev was forced to retreat, creating an atmosphere accelerating his eventual ouster at home. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I have to make a little announcement here. As of this week, my podcast has reached 1 million downloads of all its episodes, so that's a huge number, something I never, ever expected. I want to thank all of you for making this such a just tremendous success. Uh, don't forget to help me out uh, by rating this podcast on iTunes. It kind of moves me up the history podcast list so more people become aware of it. And also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, where, as always, you can ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a comment. So, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.